Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of peace and that in, in your love for us, you sent your son to accomplish that peace for us, to make that peace effective on our behalf. And that leaving us, he sent the spirit. We might have an abiding reminder of comfort and peace. That though we feel alone, we are never alone. We pray, Lord, that as we consider you, as we consider these words that you have given to us, that you would fill us with an overwhelming sense of, of peace, of joy, and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As I've already stated, uh, and as you have already experienced, that we have resumed our, our practice of, of passing the peace in our liturgy this morning. And in case you're wondering why we do this and why it's positioned where it is in our liturgy, there's a, a write-up for you answering those questions on the inside front cover of your bulletin. If the practice makes you uncomfortable, then just be glad we didn't also revive the ancient practice of greeting one another with a holy kiss. It could be much worse. And with all this talk about peace, I, I thought it'd be beneficial and appropriate if we use this Sunday before we begin another sermon series to, to better understand the nature of the peace that Christians receive and in Christ extend to one another. And using Philippians 4 as our text, I, I hope to articulate for you the, the nature of, of Christ's peace and how we as Christians can live in the reality of this peace even when life threatens to overcome us. I want to acknowledge the feeling that I know many of you, myself included, regularly experience. That is the threat of being overwhelmed. The past two and a half years have been a kick in the teeth that we were not prepared to weather well. We've experienced in our homes and cities a, a spike in isolation, death, and anxiety due to a global pandemic. Coming out of it feels like a, a strange dream from the past, and yet the social and cultural wounds are there to be discovered in the coming years and decades. At the same time, a racial reckoning began within the, with the murder of a, a black man in the streets of Minneapolis who died with his neck under the knee of a white police officer. And that was just the beginning, right? There have been even more racially motivated tragedies since then. And there's also long been a political polarization in our country that's recently been exacerbated and accelerated. There is a new illiberalism on the left and on the right that has left many people feeling politically homeless and terrified to speak. Right? There's a tremendous amount of social pressure to have settled opinions on complicated topics that many people, especially young people, were confronted with only yesterday. There's little grace to go around and it feels there's no more space to process aloud for fear of being prematurely and unfairly labeled. And all processing therefore is forced online where all productive conversations go to die or to the safety and solitude of your own mind because you're the only person you know to trust. But not even Rene Descartes could figure this one out on his own. There's little tolerance for straddling political fences which is what any Orthodox Christian is going to have to do to remain true to the faith we have inherited. 
And yet not even the church feels like it's a safe place to process aloud anymore. It's, politically, it's as politically divided in the pews as it is in the streets outside. The evangelical church in America has largely aligned itself with the new political right, and the term evangelical has further been cemented as a, a political descriptor rather than a religious one. And for this reason and others, some of our own making and some that are simply part of a secular trend in our country, the evangelical church is, is rapidly unraveling. And this is to say nothing of the evolving conversations around gender and sexuality or science and scripture or the looming potential of a recession coming your way. And all the while, there are the daily concerns of parenting, of maintaining a house, of job performance, of strained relationships, of aging parents and your own health. So if you are feeling a bit overwhelmed these days, then I get it. I'm right there with you. And if it's any comfort, so is the Apostle Paul. Right? He says so explicitly in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. He writes there in the sixth verse, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. There it is. The great apostle to the Gentiles was admittedly overcome by the circumstances of his life. He felt it as though he was going to die and perhaps even preferred it to life. As he wrote Philippians, we find him in a similar position. He was imprisoned when he wrote this letter to the church in Philippi. He says so himself in the first chapter. And we hear him debating with himself in that same chapter, waffling back and forth between whether he wishes he could die and go be with Jesus or go on living and ministering to the churches who need him. I'm hard pressed between the two, he admits. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. The Apostle Paul was frequently overwhelmed by life. His challenges were certainly different from ours, but the feelings much the same, which is what makes Philippians such an interesting letter. Because the words rejoice and joy appear in this letter 16 times, more so than any, of, uh, any other letter attributed to Paul. Indeed, our, our passage in chapter 4 begins with rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And Paul is issuing a command here, like he often does at the conclusion of his letter, stacking up imperatives on top of each other as he runs out of room to convey his thoughts. As one who knows what it's like to be overcome by life and desire even to leave this world, Paul prescribes rejoicing. And it's important to know here, note here the, the character of this joy that, that Paul is prescribing. Paul is not He's not advocating for false, trumped-up energy. He does not want you to put on a smile or turn that frown upside down. The sort of joy that Paul prescribes does not ignore the pain of life, but one that looks for Christ as a companion and champion in the midst of the pain. There he is, hanging on the cross, where he died with his arms stretched out, 
no longer as a victim now, but as a victor proclaiming blessing and extending comfort to all who cling to him when they are overcome by life. His scars are proof that he understands, his breath proof that he can help, for this is a living God. And so the joy that Paul prescribes is best characterized by the peace of Christ, peace that is born out of the presence and power of Jesus Christ. One commentary describes this perfectly for us when it says, the Philippians came to realize that when Paul talked of joy, he was in reality describing a settled state of mind characterized by peace. An attitude that viewed the world with all its ups and downs with composure. A confident way of looking at life that was rooted in faith or the faith. That is, in a keen awareness of and trust in the living Lord of the church. Again and again, the command is rejoice in the Lord. Hence, for Paul, joy is more than a mood or an emotion. Joy is an understanding of existence that encompasses both elation and depression, that can accept with submission events that bring delight or dismay, because joy allows one to see beyond any particular event to the sovereign Lord who stands above all events and ultimately has control over them. Joy is not jubilance, but confidence. Joy is being immovable in the face of many pressures. Joy is a settled state of mind characterized by the peace of knowing the closeness of Christ and his promise of salvation. Joy and peace are intimately related, just as peace and faith are intimately related. You see, you cannot have joy without peace. You cannot have peace without faith. Therefore, if you desire joy, you must seek out peace. And the way to seek out peace is through faith in Christ. In the midst of his pile of imperatives, Paul blurts out, the Lord is at hand. It's unconnected syntactically to anything before or after. He just blurts it out. The Lord is at hand. And yet here this outburst contains the seeds of peace. Believe this. Meditate upon this. The Lord is at hand. And you are on your way to peace and to joy. There are two ways to to understand Paul's interjection. The Lord is at hand. It may mean that Jesus is close. In the incarnation, he took on flesh to become a human being. He suffered and was overwhelmed in the flesh. Matthew tells us that in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night he was betrayed by Judas, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Here was a man overcome, undone by the circumstances of his life. Indeed, the author of the letter to the Hebrews writes that on account of his incarnation in the flesh, Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and he's been tested in every way that we are yet without sin. He knows what you are feeling. He knows what I feel. And yet he's patient, compassionate, gracious, and merciful 
because he too experienced the same in the flesh. The Lord is at hand and remains at hand for he has sent us the Holy Spirit to live within us as a reminder of our adoption and a guarantee that he's going to come back for us. It's true that God cannot neglect himself. Therefore, he gave us the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity to live within us. He will not neglect himself. And so therefore he will not neglect those who possess his spirit. He is at hand and remains at hand. He's very close. That's one way to understand Paul's outburst. But another way to understand the Lord is at hand is that Paul is reminding us as so many Christians in the first century did that Jesus will come again soon to make everything new and right. And no one knows when this will happen, but what will happen is known. Jesus Christ will bring rest and peace to the weary. Justice will be established. Those things that overwhelm you will vanish under the reign of the Prince of Peace. And so Paul is encouraging you to keep one eye on that glorious relief which is to come and to hang in there in the present. Keep insisting on Christ in your daily life. Push further and further into him through prayer and meditation and discipline. And we don't have to choose between these two options for both of them are true. Jesus is close, and he is coming again soon. The Lord is at hand is the seed of peace, which is watered through the practice of prayer and meditation and discipline. The behaviors that Paul commends in this passage as the means to strengthen your faith so that you might know peace and experience joy. When you are overwhelmed, it's it's often necessary to to pull back, right? To, To cancel plans, to scale back your commitments. But coinciding with any such retreat must be in advance in prayer and meditation and discipline. If you simply pull back, then you'll not actually experience the peace you seek. For peace is not just an absence, but it's the presence of Christ. And so Paul says in verse six, that if life has you feeling anxious, then pray about everything. There's nothing too small, no moment too inconsequential. Pray about everything, he says, and do so with thanksgiving. In other words, don't wait for an answer. Don't wait to see if you like the answer or not. With your prayer, articulate a confident trust that God will give you what's necessary. Pray into peace. And in verse 8, Paul then goes on to say that you should fill your head with beautiful truths. Unlike many religions that, that teach, peace comes from emptying your mind. Paul says, fill it with truth. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It's counterintuitive. Overwhelmed by the world, can't deal with all that's going on. Uh, What you need to do is to think about things, not just any things. True, honorable, just, pure pleasing, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy things. This will probably mean taking a break from social media, from the 24-7 news cycle, whether that's CNN or Fox or anywhere in between. Fill your minds with truth. Scripture, memorize it, meditate upon it. 
Now, Paul did not make up this counterintuitive position on his own. He's merely repeating and repackaging what has been taught us in the first Psalm. Blessed are those who do not walk in the way of the wicked or stand in the seat of sinners nor sit in the, or stand in the way of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But what? Their delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water which yield their fruit in season and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. Could there be a more peaceful scene? And yet it is created through meditation upon God's laws, which are life. Pray into peace. Meditate into peace. And finally, exercise discipline. In verse 9, Paul writes, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Practice the faith which is modeled for you in the Apostle Paul and is now modeled for you in Christians around you. Receive what they teach you. Mimic their behaviors. Listen to how they speak. Watch how they behave. Learn the way of Christ by mimicking those who follow him. And the result will be that the God of peace will lend you his presence and his joy. He will be with you and he will give you what is his. In both verse 7 and in verse 9, this is what the Apostle Paul says. In verse 7, pray and the peace of God will be with you. And scholars generally agree that the peace Paul is referencing here is the peace that God himself experiences. His immovability, his strength, his confidence and calmness. The sort of calmness that allowed Jesus to sleep on a boat in the midst of a raging storm. And in verse 9, meditate upon beautiful truths and practice the Christian life and the God of peace will be with you, Paul says, transforming you into the type of people, type of person who people can learn from, receive from, hear and see and become more like God by mimicking. If you're overwhelmed by the world, it's very understandable. I am as well. But may I encourage you to double down on the Lord who is at hand. Through your faith, you will have peace. You will have God and all that is his. He will have you. And in the peaceful state of mind that comes through prayer and meditation and discipline, soon you will possess joy as well. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.